Today's message is entitled, Christ was raised for our justification. Or in other words, living in freedom, part two. If you were with us last week, we climbed, did a lot of climbing last week, climbing to the Mount of Propitiation. And we breathed in some of that rarefied air, that rarefied air freedom, as we experienced one simple truth, that Christ's death on the cross turned God's wrath towards us into favor. That God's wrath towards us was turned into favor at the cross. Now, big word we use, propitiation. We can now live in God's favor, knowing that God is indeed for us. He is not against us. At the cross, God's justice was meted out and his righteousness displayed for all, for all who believe. Well, this morning, I want to stay in that summit a little longer. I believe there's more, more that God still wants us to see. He wants us to see God's commitment to justice worked out not only in our lives, that we are free, but worked out in the lives of others that we relate to, perhaps even day in and day out. You see, the freedom we're talking about this morning is not just freedom being defined between us and God, but freedom that defines our relationship with others as well. For those who place their trust in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, we are freed. Free from wondering, is God still mad at me? Is God angry at me? Is God still punishing me for my sins? But catch this. This is where we're going this morning. We are also free from punishing others for the sins they have committed against us. That's the news today. And it is good news. We have been freed, doubly so. We're free to love Jesus. We're free to bless others. We are free to entrust ourselves to a righteous judge knowing that justice will prevail. So are you free this morning? That is, are you free to leave justice into the hands of the one who is holy and just? In other words, are you free this morning not to be God? Are you free from bitterness or holding grudges for the need to have every wrong righted in your way and in your timing? Are you free to forgive? The theme this morning, live in the freedom of God's favor as experienced on the cross in the freedom of future justice as you will experience when Christ returns. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I do ask for your anointing this morning both on me as I preach, and both on the church as well, at large, that they may hear. For we ask for your anointing. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see, that we would see the implications of the freedom that we've discussed these last week and the freedom that we now profess. Father, where needed, I ask this morning that you would touch our hearts, that you would even heal our hearts, perhaps of bitterness, of grudges that we have held on to. Lord, transform us this morning by your word and by your Holy Spirit into vessels, into agents 
of your loving kindness and mercy, we pray. Amen. Well, church, we are freed. Point one, freed from taking vengeance. I'm here this morning to say that God is committed to justice. Justice being done in your life and justice being done in every single person's life, even your enemies. And catch this, nothing else I want you to hear this this morning. It is God who undertakes vengeance against sin by two means, either by the means of hell for unrepentant unbelievers or by the means of the cross for those who have repented, those who are believers, those who are Christians. God undertakes vengeance against sin by the means of hell for the means of the cross, so you don't have to. We can have full confidence in God this morning that God will enact justice. Why? Based on his death and his resurrection. One of our theme verses for this morning is Romans 4, verse 25 in your notes. That is Christ who was delivered up for our transgressions, our trespasses. It was he who was delivered up for our sins and raised up that is resurrected for our justification. This verse, simply a reiteration of last week, Romans 3, verse 25 and 26, where God says that he sent his son to be a propitiation, to be delivered up for our sins. Why? That he may be seen as just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So Christ died just that God is righteous and just and punishing sin. But he also raised him from the dead. Why? To prove that God's justice was satisfied. That God's wrath was completely exhausted. And God is saying, I approve. And he raised him up from the dead to show that God is just. And he is committed to justice. His justice will prevail. His justice has been vindicated. For he is righteous and just. You see, if God did not spare his own son to demonstrate his justice in not passing over sin, will he spare those who reject his son? The answer is no. Because he is just and God has already demonstrated that he must punish sin according to his holy character as we see upon the cross. So here's the kicker for us right here as a church. Punishment and vengeance is God's role, not ours. It's not about you. God sent his son as a propitiation. God delivered his son to death. God raised his son for our justification. It's all about God. It's not about us. Vengeance, revenge, punishment is not our business. It's not our business. He has taken us out of the equation that we would not need to enact personal vengeance or justice on those who have wronged us, our enemies. My friends, that is good news this morning. But some of you may say, but it is my business. Not Not as a perpetrator, but as a victim. And I am, aren't I, a part of the equation? For I have suffered injustice. Many of you, actually all of you, 
have here this morning. Some of you have seen great evil. You have suffered at the hands of perpetrators. You have been a victim of physical or even sexual abuse. You've encountered things that are too shameful to speak about in public. Some of you hear no political and economic oppression that I've never encountered. Those of you, perhaps, who came from Cuba. Your family's business or house was taken away from you. You've been stolen from, you've been lied to, you've been cheated by the very ones, the very government that you trusted to protect you. Some even have suffered at the hands of doctors, even medical malpractice, the very ones you trusted with your health and your body. I'm not sure why I just put that in there, but if that is you, I'd love to talk to you and even pray for you afterwards, okay? Some of you have suffered for your faith. You've suffered discrimination and mocking abuse, perhaps from your own parents or employer. Some of you have known the deepest forms of betrayal from a spouse, a husband, even a father. You gave them your heart and trust, trust, and it was crushed. All of us, in some way, great or small, know what it is to be wronged because we live in a fallen world. My friends, take heart this morning. Take heart because God promises future justice to be enacted when his enemies, and that's our enemies as Christians, are judged. You know what? That is good. That is right. Listen to the parable of the persistent widow. It comes from Luke chapter 18, verse 1 and following. And he, that is Christ, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. This is key, verse seven. And will not God give justice to his elect? That's those who've been justified. Romans 4.25. Who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This parable is for us today. It is a teaching. It is the Lord's teaching saying to us, persist, pray, don't lose heart. I love the exhortation in verse one. Do not lose heart. Will you persist? Will you persevere? Will you have faith that God's justice will indeed prevail? Why? Because Christ, who was resurrected, is the same Christ who will be returning to judge. The resurrected and the ascended one is coming back to judge the earth. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are 
afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wow, don't hear that read too often, do you? It's right there in the word of God. But do you see it? God's vengeance is to be what? Relief to you, God's chosen and elect. As John Piper puts it, this is God's future grace to you. God cares about justice. He has not turned a blind eye. He does not have a deaf ear to the injustice that you suffer. God wants us to have relief. God wants us to have confidence. God wants us to have hope of God's vengeance upon his enemies. My friends, that is grace. But you say, wait, 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 wait. Time out, time out here, okay. <laughs> you told me last week that we're free to sin. Now you tell me this week that I can look forward to have hope in God's fiery vengeance on my enemies? Can it be? Is it true? I say yes. Not me. I believe scripture says yes. The very scriptures that we've just read. Be careful here. He will have vengeance on the enemies of the gospel. Not your brother or sister in Christ. That person who just offended you or is acting like a dodo head, okay? We'll deal with them in a little bit. We're not there yet, okay? We're speaking about God's enemies, enemies of the gospel and the church. You see, it is not wrong to want justice. It is part of being made, I believe, in the image of God. It's part of our moral DNA. Even unbelievers have an innate sense of justice, don't do they not? Every society, Christian or non, has in some form some type of law and law enforcement. But we see it even in our children, don't we? This notion of justice and what is fair. When your child says, Daddy, that's not fair. Then they go into the trial lawyer mode. Where do you get, get, get that? Well, probably from the parents, actually. You and me. That only serves to confirm the point. It's innate to humanity. This idea of justice. It's part, I believe, being made in the image of God, who is just. God is just, and we too should prize justice. In fact, we cannot ignore justice issues of our day. I don't think we can ignore the issue of abortion or a fight for the unborn. I believe we should fight for the sanctity of life as a justice issue. But here is the but. Here is the qualifier. For you knew something had to be said, right? Well, warning. And there is a warning right here. We often want justice. Now, that is not ours to take. Or we want God's justice, but we want it for the wrong reasons or motives. To desire justice doesn't mean that we can take justice into our own hands when it comes to dealing with our enemies. We are not vigilantes, okay? I know it could be adrenaline rush to watch movies like The Bourne Identity or the whole trilogy or to watch an old Clint Eastwood movie. That's a lot of fun. Why? Because there's something in us 
that rightly despises injustice, right? And evil. We want to see justice done. But friends, we are not one-man killing machines. We are not vigilantes, all right? They're out there to seek justice, personal vengeance. We are not Jason Bourne, Clint Eastwood, or James Bond. And neither are we to live with such fantasies. <laughs> I was reading the scripture this week. You know what? I was kind of comforted in maybe a sadistic wrong way. But I think the disciples had such fantasies as well. I was reading Luke 9. We read of the disciples who are going to Jerusalem, but they need to pass through Samaria. Those of you who may know, there was bad blood to the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews viewed Samaritans as apostate, as half-breeds. There was no respect. There was no love going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. Well, apparently, as they were passing through southward to Jerusalem, they had to stop in a Samaritan village. And they got the cold shoulder. They were rejected. We don't know how, but the Samaritans living in that village. <laughs> Listen to the words of the disciples. Luke 9, verse 54. And when the disciples, James and John, probably the name Sons of Thunder, saw it, that is the rejection of them and Christ, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What do you think, Lord? Let's do it right now. You and me? Yeah, thinking they're Elijah the prophet or something. Oh, I can't relate. Oh, I can't relate, sadly. But look at the next verse, verse 55. But he, that is Christ, turned and rebuke them. How many times I've wanted to call fire down on someone to take justice into my own hands as a lone vigilante. It can look so many ways, church. You know it. It can be, as we've talked about many times, simply a car on the roadway. They cut you off and you're right in their bumper with looks that could kill you're going to let them know that they just crossed a boundary here. That was a no-no, and you're going to pay for it. Yes. It could be even more serious. It could be a relationship in which you felt wronged or sinned against, and you're going to make the other person pay. You're going to make them pay for what they said or what they did to you. That could be complete withdrawal from them. It could be the cold shoulder. It could be verbal, lashing tirades against them. Or it could just be malicious slander behind their back. Either way, you're saying, fire! Come down. It could be a talking head on television, a political commentator or candidate, and you hear them speak, and you believe in your heart they are promoting injustice. And what do you do if that talking head the television, fire! You want to come on down. Friends, there will be a day when God's righteous judgment will be meted out upon his enemies fully and completely. But the day has not yet come. But on that day, we'll be able to rightly rejoice in God's vengeance. And this is the wild thing of it all we'll be able to rejoice in God's vengeance as an expression of worship for God's perfect judgment. 
in its execution. And then we will see who our real enemies are. The problem is, we still live, don't we, on this side of heaven. And we see dimly, our motives are often not righteous for wanting justice. They're often so often not righteous and not worshipful. Too often our motives are purely vindictive and we're just oozing a bitterness from the heart rather than worship. I think the words of Jonathan Edwards, speaking of heaven and our role there, can help us here on earth. I want to read a quote from him. It says this, Divine vengeance will be no occasion of joy to the saints because it is pleasant to them to behold the misery of others merely for its own sake. It is not to be understood that they are to rejoice in having their revenge glutted, but to rejoice in seeing the justice of God executed and in seeing his love to them in executing it on his enemies. Our role is not to call down fire from heaven. It is not to rejoice in having our revenge glutted or abundantly supplied, oozing with bitterness or fire in our bones. But it is to rejoice in God's perfect judgment and justice, saying that for the grace of God, there go I. So how do we get there in rejoicing in God's vengeance? For the right reasons, I mean. We must go back to the cross and his resurrection where he demonstrated his justice and his loving kindness towards us, undeserving sinners. We must study the cross as we're doing. We must sing about the glorious cross and resurrection by which we are justified. There is only one way to live in the freedom of God's favor and future justice. Only one way. It's on bended bended knee. It's in a posture of humility as recipients of God's mercy. Perhaps there's no better passage in Scripture to reinforce what has just been said than Romans chapter 12. Here Paul is speaking to Christians, Christians who know evil, Christians who know what it is to be wronged. Listen to Paul's word, which is God's word to us. He's saying, we are not called to be agents of God's wrath, but instruments of God's mercy because we have been shown mercy. Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32. Now verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a quote from Proverbs 25. What's our job? Verse 19. Leave it to the wrath of God. But he goes further. By the way, I comment on that as well. If it's unlawful justice that you are experiencing, 
and there is legal recourse. Paul does address that in the next chapter, Romans 13. For it is the governing authorities, he says, who are God's servants. To do what? To avenge, to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. It's Romans 13, 4. But we personally are not called to vengeance. We are called to leave it to the wrath of God. We are not to be agents of wrath, throwing down fire wherever we go, but vessels of mercy and grace. We've been freed, church. We have been freed from taking vengeance. Why? So we now can be free to love others, especially our enemies. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Romans 12. But where have we heard those words before? Oh, we have. Christ's words himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Peter, echoing these same words of Jesus, writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for those to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Christ is not asking us to be pushovers. Christ is not asking us to be spineless wimps. I know this is how it's been interpreted by some in times past. Quite the contrary. God is asking us to live truly supernatural lives, a supernatural faith. He's asking us to go to the summit of propitiation to see his justice and his commitment to justice and to righteousness. And to behold his mercy. You see, church, we can withstand injustice because we can entrust ourselves to God the Father as Christ did to the one who judges justly. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 22. We are thus free to love unconditionally and supernaturally. See what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 20? Heap burning coals on our enemy's head. By the good we do? Let me explain that. This is the type of fire that we're to call down and use. It's called love. It's called supernatural mercy. To quote John Stott, these are the type of coals that are intended, quote, to heal, not to hurt, to win, not to alienate. In fact, to shame him into repentance by our supernatural good deeds and love. The goal of such mercy and kindness towards those who wrong us towards those who offend us, towards our enemy, is repentance and redemption of our very enemies. And in turn, First Peter, we know, we will receive a blessing. We will see hearts transformed by the gospel in this supernatural mercy. Does that disturb you? Just a little bit? God, I'm tracking with you, Corey, about, you know, getting into this vengeance thing on our enemies. 
But now you're saying, yeah, we know God's just and he will judge, but what to do kindness to them and repent? What if I don't want my enemies to repent? I kind of like the fact that vengeance is coming. <laughs> well, if you do, you've got a problem, okay? Oh, maybe you need to repent as well. That does disturb you. It does reveal your heart, does it not? It reveals a Jonah heart, the prophet Jonah. Remember Jonah? He was asked to go to Nineveh. But he didn't go. Why did, did Jonah not go? Was he afraid? Nah, he had reason to be afraid. That's not what Jonah tells us in his own book. This is why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, to his enemies. Because he said, you know what? I know my God. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting on those who repent. What's he saying? I don't want my enemies to repent. I want judgment, not mercy. See, these are the same Assyrians that were known for their battle warfare. Literally, of taking their enemies, slitting them, and when they're still alive, peeling back their skin, like a skin of a grape, and pouring salt upon their wombs. Those are the Assyrians. No way, God. I know if I go, they're going to repent. I want judgment. I'm sitting out here on my hill. I want to see fire come down. It doesn't happen. And he falls into depression. Why? He wanted justice. What he saw as justice and judgment. All the while, God had given him mercy. Oh, what a hypocrite. Doesn't that describe us, though, so many times? Oh, we're anxious for judgment on that person. But God, have patience and mercy and grace on me. How easily we can slip into that mentality. And it grieves God. It should grieve you as well. Well, how do you know then if you were truly free to live in God's favor and future justice? It's when you're free to bless your enemy. When he curses you with a desire that takes you may be saved. That's when you know you're free. Truly free. Knowing all along that God's justice will be satisfied whether it's in hell or by the cross. But you can rejoice the thoughts of your enemies turning from their sin and coming to the Lord and Savior. I get a little more personal now. I'm going to meddle here a little bit, okay? Some of you have come to this country, to the United States, and you've sought political and economic freedom that you have received. But I'm not sure some of you are free. Not free in your heart. You're still holding a grudge. You're bitter. You're bitter about the injustice done to you, your family, that of your nation. Just the name of a certain man, a ruler, or a party causes you to want to call down fire. I don't know your heart for sure, but at times I wonder. It usually shows up in your eyes, in your tone of voice. But it's mostly about the fact that you have a hard time, you struggle praying 
for your enemy. If you can't pray for your enemy, I don't believe you're free. Not the kind of freedom that we're talking about here this morning. The kind of freedom that God wants for you to experience, for me to experience, we as a church to experience. God wants to set you free. Free that you don't have to take vengeance. Free that you may love. Free that you truly may forgive. You may have wondered as I talked this morning, Corey, I'm tracking with you, but what if I've been wronged by a fellow believer who I know is a Christian? You may even say, I often find it more difficult to forgive them because they should know what's right. And in one of your more honest moments, you may say, you know, hey, I, I know they've been saved from God's wrath just like me. They're forgiven. They're off the hook. Is that supposed to be a comfort and solace to me in their offense against me? Well, what then is our basis for releasing that grudge? What is our basis for not holding a grudge against our fellow brother or sister in Christ? The answer, once again, we look to the cross. All the wrongs that have been done to you by other believers, all the hurts, every hurt you have received by a brother or sister in Christ has already been avenged by the death of Jesus. Remember the verse you started with? Romans 4, verse 25. Christ was delivered up for our transgressions or trespasses and raised for our justification. Those trespasses, those sins that were forgiven and paid include the sins of your brother and sister that were committed against you as well. They have been paid in full. Christ died and was raised by God that he may justify the very believers that may be accusing, you may be accusing in your heart right now. To withhold forgiveness, you're slandering God. You're slandering the gospel. In the words of John Piper, I love this phrase. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. That's what you're doing. If you hold the grudge, you are doubting the judge. Why? Because justice was already satisfied at the cross. And we know that because of the resurrection, it doesn't have to be satisfied now in your home, in your workplace, in your church, in your relationships. You are free to live without a grudge, free to live without bitterness. You are free to love God freely and to obey him. This past year, uh, my family and I have been reading through the story of Corey Tim Boom. We've been reading the book, The Hiding Place. Many of you know her story. She was a marvelous, courageous woman of God who suffered in the Nazi concentration camps in World War II. You see, Corey Tim Boom was eventually released from that concentration camp. She was free. But the real test of freedom came a time later when Corrie ten Boom was speaking at a church in Germany. She was giving her a testimony of what God had done in her life. And after she finished speaking, a gentleman came up to him and she recognized him immediately. This man was a former jailer of hers. A jailer who had mockingly, verbally abused her. 
when she was stripped naked in front of that man in that jail cell. That man came up to her after she spoke. And I'll pick up the story in Corey's own words. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Church, that's freedom. That's living in the freedom that God provides for you and for me. Let's together climb to the summit. Take out your binoculars. Look ahead and look to the freedom that comes by the cross and in God's future justice. Be free. That we might say, as the saints in heaven, in the words that are recorded in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Let's pray. Dear Lord, these are sweet words. These are challenging words this morning. Oh, Father, embed these truths now in our hearts, we pray. We don't just want to know these truths. We want to feel them. We want to know them. We want to experience what freedom is. Lord, set us free this morning. As we walk up out of this auditorium, may we experience a newfound freedom in our lives and towards those whom we may count as enemies. Father, use us. Empower us now to love and to live in the freedom which you have provided. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, I hope you see the supernatural. Christ's death and resurrection was supernatural. Are living this truth, the supernatural. We need help, don't we not? We need the Spirit of God to live the supernatural life of freedom in the face of offense and wrongdoing.